how loud is your laugh? Do you have any loud laughers in the room? I asked them this question this week, and they said, not as loud as your laugh. And uh, I am a loud laugher, confession moment. Uh, and I apparently have always been a loud laugher. My parents tell the story of my very first laugh moment that they'd gone to Southern California to visit my aunt and uncle, and we were sitting in an A&W restaurant, and something got me tickled. I was about 18 months old, and I started giggling, and I couldn't stop. And so my parents started laughing, and my uncle started laughing, and apparently I just kept laughing. I guess the energy just kind of gave me more laughter. And by the end, the whole restaurant was laughing. I guess it was my first public sermon. I just, I, I had everybody laughing in the room. And this continued all throughout kind of my life. I went to college, and my friends would tell me that my, my laugh entered the room before I did. They knew I was coming because I guess I get sent my laugh ahead. I was in a theater one time watching a movie. Apparently, it was pretty funny because my phone texted in my pocket, and I checked it. And somebody said, are you in? And they named the theater and the movie I was watching. And they said, I could hear you. I could hear you laughing. I knew you were in here. And so what I've found uh, as I've gone on, that, that often I can kind of attach my laugh to how I'm doing. I, I was working at a, another church, and the receptionist, one day I walked in, she's like, Scott, I just wanted to check on you. Are you okay? And I said, what do you mean, am I okay? I just haven't heard you laugh as much as you normally do. And so I just figured, like, maybe you're depressed or anxious or something. And I was like, wow, I guess it's like a, you know, like high blood pressure thing. You know, like, am I, am I laughing or not? Well, I realized recently that I needed to laugh more. I think we all could laugh more. There's actually science that says the older we get, the, the less we use our imagination and the less we laugh. And I think those are often tied to maybe th- healthy things we should keep from our younger years on into adulthood. And so I, I've tried to, to watch and listen to more comedy to be able to laugh more. And one of my favorite comedians is a guy named Dustin Nickerson. I saw him right before the world went crazy in 2020. And, and he released a book last year that I just loved. It's called How to Be Married to Melissa. And, uh, and so I, I got the book. I got it on an audible. And I, I had a long road trip one day. And so I just binged the book the whole drive. I finished it in one day. Now, I listened to my books at 1.5 speed. So that, that helps a little bit. But I just laughed and laughed and laughed. Probably 15 or 16 times I cackled. And for me, a laugh is, a laugh is right here and a cackle is right here. My friend calls it full dolphin, Scott. You know, like I'm just, I'm just cackling. And so I just loved, I loved the book. And one of the things I loved about this book is, is summarized in the title. Dustin said when he starts the book out, he says, I don't know how to be married to your wife. I don't know how to be married to your husband. All I know is how to be married to Melissa, his wife of 20 years. He said, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what I've learned about being married to my wife. And if there's any principles you pick up, if there's anything you hear or see that you can take with you, do it. And I just love that sense of humility because I think sometimes we, we overestimate how much we know. And, and what Dustin is doing is he's tapping into a very real problem in our world that, that we have a comparison problem. We have, we have a real problem with comparing our lives to other people's lives. And, and Dustin hits on this when he talks about not trying to compare your marriage to somebody else's. And, and we all know this, that social media is not helping with this. Just as a reminder, because this is something we all need to hear, if, especially if you're on social media, you are not seeing 100% of somebody else's life. But you are comparing whatever percentage of their life you see to 100% of your own life. Because we know 100% of our own lives. And what we end up doing is comparing what we know of our life, which is everything, 
It's what we know of their life, which is just a little bit. But for those of you who, who kind of are anti-social media and you're like, Scott, yeah, take it to Facebook, take it to TikTok. Here's the thing. Comparison is not a new problem, though. I, I know this because my kids remind me that I was born in the 1900s, you know, the, the late 1900s. They'll say, Dad, you were born in the 1900s, you know. Um, and I'm like, yes, that was so long ago, the 20th century. I just, before there was technology, they're like, yeah, before there was technology. Um, but, but in the late 1900s, when I was born, we had comparison problems, but they were different. Our, our neighbors would drive up in a new car, and we would compare their car to our older car. Or I would go to school in the fall, and my friends would have new Nikes. And I would still be wearing last year's Payless shoes my mom got for buy one, get one half off. Everybody remembers those Payless. I was a Payless kid. Maybe if you've been to a high school reunion, you know about comparison. You show up and you compare where you've ended up with your career and your life to people whose opinions you were so sure in high school meant everything. And now 20 years later, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm glad I moved on from high school. And then for those of you who are retired, you battle the comparison thing too. Because you're comparing what you are able to do in retirement based upon how much you were able to save and set aside versus other people's retirement and what they were able to save and set aside. And you don't need social media for that. And the reason why I bring this up is that comparison is at the core of what we've been talking about for the last six weeks in this series called Leaving Egypt. We've been talking about how do we find freedom on the road to Egypt. We've been looking at the story of the Israelites and how they found freedom. And what I've discovered is that it can be easy to compare our Egypts, and it can become easy to compare our timelines. In this series, if you've been here, we've, we've tried to help identify what might Egypt represent for you past or present. And it's really easy to compare things like, oh man, you're, you're caught up in that Egypt and that's not a temptation for me at all. Or you struggle with that Egypt, but man, that's not like mine. Or we begin to say, hey, if we, if we know that we each have an Egypt, we're like, man, you're getting out of your Egypt and overcoming it so much faster than I am. Some of us feel like we're, we're behind, that other people are finding freedom while we're still feeling stuck. That other people are finding victory where we just can't find a win. And I, I've been so encouraged as somebody who has spent a lot of my life comparing myself in unhealthy ways. I've been so encouraged by this reminder from John Acuff. He says, don't compare your beginning to someone else's middle. So often what we do with comparison is we compare improperly. When I first started preaching, I would listen to people on podcasts or watch their videos on YouTube and go, man, they are so much better than I am. Why would anybody listen to me? And then somebody would go, Scott, how many sermons have they given? I don't know, hundreds. How many have you given? 20. Beginning. For, further along. And many of us, what we do is we end up feeling discouraged and despairing because we're comparing ourselves not to where we used to be, not going, man, this is where I once was, and thank God that he's brought me to about where I am, but we compare ourselves to other people. And like we said with expectations last week, comparison can get us in deep, deep trouble, which brings us to today. Today is Palm Sunday, if you didn't know that. And Palm Sunday is the day that historically we remember the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. 
And for the people who were standing there welcoming Jesus, they were experiencing both comparison and expectation. Because the way that Jesus entered the city, it, it was as if he was a returning king or victorious general. Other people had entered the city like Jesus was. And people had shouted things like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had shouted things like, Hosanna, Hosanna. They'd, they had brought out palm branches and laid down their cloaks. And, and they'd had a conquering general or a conquering king return on a horse showing that he was victorious. And so when they saw Jesus enter this way, all of these expectations rose in their minds like this is a king who's going to take over. This is a general who's going to defeat the Romans. And the reasons why they were shouting Hosanna and shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is they were expecting him to do what Caesar would have done. And yet what we see when we watch the narrative of Holy Week play out is we see people who are going, this is not going like I expected it to go. This is not going by comparison the way that my expectations were. And that's why for the people who lived Holy Week, it was so jarring and unsettling. Because God didn't do what they thought he was going to do. And he certainly didn't show up in the ways they expected him to show up. So today what I want to talk to you about is that to overcome comparison, we have to address our expectations. So if you're taking notes today, if you got the handout, here's the big idea. A major obstacle to experiencing God is our unhealthy and unrealistic expectations of God. A huge obstacle to experiencing God, and I would presume that most of you who are here today are either believers in God, you believe that Jesus Christ is his son and the full expression of who he is, or you're searching for God. I would assume most of you have some hunger to experience God. That's why you're here today. And, and I just want to, I want you to experience God. I want you to find what you're looking for, that your soul was created for. And I just want you to know there's a huge obstacle in your way. And it's what you expect of God, especially those expectations that aren't realistic and aren't healthy. And what we're going to see today as we look through the story of the Israelites is their expectations became an obstacle to experience God too. So today what I'm going to do is we draw this series to a close this Leaving Egypt series, is I want to share with you three final thoughts on Egypt and freedom. If you haven't watched this series so far, and you're like, Scott, what is my Egypt? How is that? Please go online, watch those messages. They're on our website. They're on YouTube, and get caught up. But today, we're going to start out in the book of Exodus chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up or turn it on. Turn there, scroll there, however you're going to engage the Bible today. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. It's right near the front. It's very hard to miss. And we're going to read the first seven verses. And as a church, we have a value of submitting to Scripture, and part of how we do that is by honoring that. So I want to encourage you, whether you have a Bible or not, to stand right now, and we're going to read these seven verses. You can follow along on the screen. Catherine will keep you up to, up to where we are. Here's why the passage begins. But the Lord replied to Moses, and he said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of a strong hand, he will let them go. And because of a strong hand, he will drive them from his land. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But I was not known to them by my name, the Lord. I also established my covenant with them. 
to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as aliens. Furthermore, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenants. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. Jesus, may our hearts be as open as our Bibles are right now. May we hear and receive what it is you want to speak to us, and may you help us to apply and live that word out this week. And Lord, I selfishly pray pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. I mentioned there was three final things I wanted to tell you about Egypt and freedom. And the first one comes from this text. And if you're taking notes, it's point number one. In the Exodus, God intended to show his uniqueness and his power. God intends to show the people his uniqueness and his power. The reason why this is important is that the world of this time is littered with idolatry. There is a God for everything and gods are everywhere. The idea of one God standing above all the rest or one God being unique compared to all the rest, is a radical idea. And so what God does is he says to Moses here, hey, I'm going to bring the people out of of slavery in Egypt, and I'm going to do it in spectacular fashion. And he does this through bringing what we call ten plagues on the people of Egypt. I've got a list of the plagues right here. He turns water into blood. He brings frogs lice or gnats, flies, pestilence on their livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and ultimately the killing of firstborn children. It is a brutal scene as act after act and plague after plague come, all intended to break the will of Pharaoh And allow the people to be free. But what's interesting is that in this world of so many gods, that the the plagues themselves are in some way an indictment of God's power over those gods. Let me give you some examples here. So the the Nile is turned to blood, which interestingly is represented by the god Hopi, the, the god of the Nile. The frogs come in, and interestingly, there's Hemet, who's a goddess of birth and fertility who has a frog's head. The, the, the gnats that are there, or the lice, depending on your translation, you know, correspond to Set, the god of desert storms, because there's tons of desert storms in this area of the world. The flies, there's Yudichich, I think that's how you say that name, the fly god. The death of the livestock can correspond to Hathor, the god of fertility, who has a cow's head. The, the boils can correspond to Sekhmet, the, the god of pestilence. 
Hail can correspond to Nut, the sky goddess. Locust to Osiris, the god of the crops. Darkness to Ra, the sun god. And then finally, the death of the firstborn can either be Min, the god of reproduction, or the pharaoh himself, who was worshipped as a god. Now, you might be saying, Scott, are you saying that every single plague was showing a defeat of that specific god? No, because the text doesn't say that. Isn't like Moses says, hey, now turns to blood and hey, shame on you now, God. You know, it doesn't happen like that. But what we do see God saying is that what he's doing here is above all of those gods. And in the presence of all of those gods, he's showing his uniqueness and he's showing his power. Exodus 9, 13 says, then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time, I'm going to send all my plagues, these 10, against you, your officials, and your people. Then you will know that there is no one like me on the whole earth. God is saying to his people and to all the Egyptians, amidst all of your gods, and these 10 are just like a thimble of all of the Egyptian gods. He's saying, I am unique And I am powerful, and that's why my people are no longer going to be enslaved, and now they're going to be free. And God does this, as I said, in spectacular fashion. Altogether, the plagues lasted somewhere between six weeks and five months. So we've been in this series, Egypt, leaving Egypt for six weeks. So that's kind of the length on the conservative side. Five months. We're talking before Thanksgiving till now. That's how long these were, plague after plague after plague after plague after plague. That's how hard-hearted the Pharaoh was. That's what it took to deliver the people. That's what it took to show the Egyptians that this God is not like any other God. And you might say, well, they they needed to see that because they had all of these idols. I mean, these people were just worshiping all of these gods. But now we're like, you know, I'm I'm an advanced, you know, 21st century American. I, I don't worship little things like that. I'm above that. Well, here's the thing. Modern people have gods too. They're not little stone dolls. They're technology. They're the way we communicate. They're the way we spend money. They're politics. They're education. They're the things we use to make sense of the world and make ourselves feel powerful and secure in the world. And most of us tend to be judgmental of other people who worship gods that we don't, who struggle in ways that we don't, all the while, while we have the things that we're looking to for what only God can give. And amidst our struggle and amidst their struggle, God enters the picture and he says, there is no one like this God. There's no one like me. And that's how you can know that you're going to be free. Because I'm going to deliver you. I am unique and I have great power. That's why you can have hope for being free. Because there's a powerful God who's making your deliverance possible. The second thing you have to know before we close this series out about Egypt and freedom is this. That God promises to give his presence, but he does not promise to give total understanding. 
So these people are experiencing slavery. They're freed through these plagues. Some of you are recognizing, you know what, Scott, I am in Egypt and I need to experience freedom. And and the thing you need to know if you're not going to get tripped up by unhealthy or unrealistic expectations is what does God promise and what does he not promise? We'll see just in a second that God promises to give his presence, but he does not promise to give total understanding. I I just want to acknowledge something. I I try to kind of anticipate what you have in your mind while I'm preaching and then kind of call it out. Some of you are like, Scott, are you in my house because you just know me so well? I go, no, you're not that unique. The things you think about and struggle with, other people do too. And and the truth is that the Exodus, if you discover this, it includes a lot of hard material. This is not an easy book to read through. It's challenging. It's difficult. And it's difficult because some of the things it says are just hard for us to swallow. Like here, God says that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus chapter 4. The Lord instructs Moses at the burning bush still. When you go back to Egypt, make sure you do before the Pharaoh all the wonders I've put within your power. That's the plagues. But I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And you'll say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Look, I'm about to kill your firstborn son. That's hard. That's not an easy pill to swallow. And so what God does is he fulfills his word there. He kills the son of Pharaoh and not just Pharaoh, but many others. Exodus 12. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all of his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone That's heavy. That's hard. And, and then there's the fact that the, the Hebrews spent 430 years in Egypt, most of it in captivity. For comparison, for those of you who have our time imagining 430 years, by comparison, America has been a nation for 247. Almost double the length of our nation's history. That's how long they were in Egypt And most of it, they were slaves. It's a long time. That's why in Exodus 12, we see the time the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, all the Lord's military divisions went out from the land of Egypt. And so God says, I heard my people's cry. And so I delivered them. But if you're thinking, God, how long did you hear their cry? Because these people are going to go free, but their parents and their grandparents and their great-granddaddy and their great-great-great-great-granddaddy and their great-great-great-great-great-grandma. What about them? You're like, I can't believe a pastor is talking about it. You think about this stuff. Why shouldn't we talk about it? So, So what do these passages make really clear? What they make clear to me is that God acts in ways that don't make sense to us. Like, if you read the Bible and you're like, 
Am I weird? This is hard to accept. No, you're not. Because God's not like you. And if God is like you, trust me, you've not elevated yourself up to God. You've lowered him down to you. This side of heaven, we are not in control and we often do not understand. So if you're going to have a relationship with the God that you meet in this book, you are not going to control him and you are not going to understand him. And those are hard places to be. Some of you are there right now. Stuff's happening right there like, Scott, this makes no sense. And I'm not in control. Friend, you got lots of company. That doesn't make it easy. It just means that we should start expecting that. Not being surprised by that. That's why the big idea is this, that it's an obstacle to experiencing God when we have unhealthy and unrealistic expectations of God. If you expect to understand and control God, you are going to struggle to experience him. Because he never said that he would be down on the level that you would totally understand. And if you can control God, oof, you're not worshiping God, you're just worshiping a version of yourself. And so you say, Scott, well, what do I do with that? What do, I, what do I do once I'm in that place? Well, God gives you an invitation in that place. And it's the same invitation he gave the people of Israel. His invitation is to trust and obey him in the absence of control and understanding. But I don't know what's going on. Yeah. You trust. But, but I don't, I'm not in control. Yeah, he calls you to Obey, because he is. And this is the story of man after woman and man after woman and man after woman from Genesis to Revelation. Who didn't know where they were going, who didn't know what God was doing, who were struggling to make sense of a God acting in ways that they wouldn't if they were God. And God still says, trust me. Follow me. Go where I'm leading you. final thing I want to share with you today, number three. God required that the people leave Egypt and to leave it behind in order to enter the promised land. God requires that his people, if they're going to enter what he has for them, they have to leave behind where they once were. Now this sounds really simple, but as you'll discover in a couple minutes, it's far from it. Certainly not easy. Again, back to the burning bush, Exodus 3. God speaking to Moses. He says, I've observed the misery of my people, and I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors, the Egyptians. I know about their sufferings, and I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Those seem like hard names, but compared to the Egyptian gods, those are a cakewalk. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I've also seen the ways the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go, I am sending you to Pharaoh, so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. This is the picture. The, the, the story isn't just 
leave Egypt and you're done. The story isn't just leave Egypt and go into the wilderness and you're done. The story is leave Egypt, go through the wilderness, and then step into the promised land. And so for those of you who've been with us for this series and you're like, Scott, I I know what my Egypt is. I think I'm in the wilderness. I just want to remind you, God is not going to abandon you in the wilderness. He's going to lead you into the promised land. One of the greatest preachers in the history of the church is a guy from the 4th century named John Chrysostom. He was such a brilliant preacher that he was nicknamed Golden Tongue. I will never be called Golden Tongue, just just for the record. If any of you try to call me that, I will know that you are brown-nosing and I will ignore you. Here's what he said 1,600 years ago. He said, it is not enough to leave Egypt. One must also enter the promised land. So I just want to encourage those of you who found your Egypt or maybe you stepped into the wilderness, you can't stop here. You'll be tempted to give up here. You'll be tempted to just say, I'm exhausted, I can't go any further. But your story is not done until you've entered the promised land. And I want to remind you that yes, it is hard to leave Egypt. That place where you forgot who you were, who God called you to be. It's hard to leave that thing behind that you've become attached to, that you've looked to for safety and security and significance and for what only God can give you. It is hard to leave behind a place that you feel so familiar with, even though you know it's toxic and unhealthy. And it's hard to wander in the wilderness. In that space, as we mentioned last week, between what you knew and what God has for you. It's hard to be in the wilderness where where you're hungry and you're tired and you're confused and you're uncomfortable. But don't forget, it is also hard to enter the promised land. It takes years for the people to fully claim the promised land. It takes, it takes a stretch that some people don't have in them because they don't trust God to the degree that they needed to. We could do a whole other six weeks just about that part of the story. But what happens is that God's people have to be prepared to take possession of the promised land. In the same way that they have to be prepared to step out into the wilderness. Because the way they thought and the way they lived and the way they saw themselves and the way they related to God in Egypt would not help them flourish in the promised land. They had to leave some things behind. Let me illustrate this for you. Most of us hate or dread feeling embarrassed in public. Like we have those scenarios we run in our minds of please never let this happen because I would be totally embarrassed. I would be totally just, I would want to die in my own skin. And one of those moments for me is when I go to the store and I buy something and I see on it with those little tags, you know, the security tags. And I'm just making sure, hey, I'm going to get up there to pay for this and I'm going to make sure they pull this off because I'm not going to go through those big scanners in the front. Everybody stare at me. But a few weeks ago, I was buying something from a section of the store that I didn't know had one of these. It was like hidden inside. And so I I get up to the scanners having bought it, and the whole store explodes with alarms. 
And what does everybody do? They stare at me. Like, I'm not a thief, but everybody thinks I'm a thief. And what do they do? They go, sir, it's okay, just keep going. I'm like, no. All of these people think I'm a thief. No, you're going to come over here and check my stuff and prove I'm not a thief. Because everybody now looks at me, and then they're going to come to Cornerstone. It's like, oh, it's the thief from Target. You know, like, we're not going to... We're not going to have that. I'm not famous, but I'm just known well enough that I can't go to Costco and not see anybody I don't know. So I thought of that story when I was reading this text because it was as if in that moment the store was saying to me, Scott, you can't take that with you. And I wonder what God might be saying to you as you leave Egypt and leave the wilderness and he leads you into the promised land, what is it that you can't take with you? What is it that you've picked up along the way on your journey as you were in bondage in your own Egypt and as you went to the promised land that if you're going to step into all that God has for you, you can't take that with you? And it's, it's not an expectation that you're going to be perfect along the way. Because if you know the story of the Israelites, they are so far from perfect. And it's not that God is acting here in judgment, because what we see in the wilderness is this, that the Lord passes in front of Moses and he proclaims, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. So if you've stumbled in the wilderness, or you're like, man, I've struggled in Egypt for a long time, we have a God who is compassionate and gracious. But he's also abounding in faithful love and truth. And he knows that the you that's holding on to this cannot receive all that he wants to give you in the promised land. You can't take those things with you. Because your past is Egypt. And your future is the promised land. And for some of you, that promised land, you will experience it in this life. Amen. Beautiful. Others of you will only experience it in eternity. And I don't know. Because I'm not God. But I believe there are some things that some of us still have in our hands. That we can't keep. If we're going to step in and receive all that God has for us. So my question for you is this. What would it look like for you to leave Egypt behind this holy week what is it like that thing that was in my grocery bag that i couldn't leave the store with that i had to leave inside the store to to leave it behind five days from today on friday night we're going to celebrate good friday in this place 6 p.m we're going to have an hour-long service and typically all we say to you is just show up we'll make sure the building's clean We'll make sure you can hear. If you're watching from home, we'll make sure that you can see. But this service, we need you to bring something. We're going to ask you to not come empty-handed. Say, Scott, what do you want me to bring? I want you to bring a symbol of what Egypt represents in your life, past or present. If you know what your Egypt is, I want you to bring a symbol of it. For me, I'm going to bring a pair of glasses. Not because I'm getting rid of glasses that magically my eyes have been healed and I see perfectly now. 
but because there are some ways of seeing the world and seeing people that I need to leave behind. For you, it might also be a symbol of something. For others of you, it might need to be the actual thing. Like if your Egypt is alcohol, I want you to bring a very full backpack that night. I'm not joking. If your Egypt is pornography, then maybe you need to bring a computer or an iPad. Because if we're going to step into the resurrection and step into the promised land and go into all that God has for us, there are some things we can't take with us. We can't take Egypt into the promised land. We got to leave it behind. So I've got a couple next steps for you before we segue into communion this morning. He's in the back of your handout if you're new here. The first one is this. If you're going to do this, you have to depend on God's power. Like, Scott, of course you said that. That's your pastor. No, no, here's, here's what I mean. If you're going to actually leave Egypt behind, you would have done it by now. Like, if you were going to get free on your own, you'd already be free. You will not step into all that God has for you and the freedom that he makes possible for you in your power. You will only find it by depending on his. So for some of you, your first step is I'm going to start daily, multiple times a day, turning back to you and depending on God's power. Secondly, some of you, it's wrestling with God in prayer. Say, Scott, what do you mean? Some of you are, are wrestling with those hard things. Those things you don't control, you don't understand, God doesn't make sense. You have to wrestle that out with God in prayer. Like Jacob did, where he wrestled with God all night in Genesis. Like David did, where he poured his heart out to God. You do know that you can be honest with God, right? Like you can tell him anything you want. Because, spoiler alert, he knows. And it's actually in that intimacy of honesty that you actually grow intimacy. If you want to experience God and your unhealthy and unrealistic expectations are getting in the way, then flip those for a realistic expectation and a healthy expectation that God hears your prayers and he meets you in that wrestling. And then find number three, find and bring a symbol of your Egypt on Friday. So if you don't have anything, we're not going to bounce you at the door, you know. But we're just going to invite you to be a part of this by bringing something. And we're going to ask you to start preparing to leave it here when you come. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you know us better than anybody else. And you love us more than everyone else. There is no part of our life that is in shadows to you. Everything is known. And yet what we find there is not shame and not condemnation. It is a vision for our life that is so much larger than we could ever imagine. You've come and given yourself so that we can be free. So we pray that instead of depending on our own strength, depending on our own power, 
trying to understand and control everything, we pray that we might unclench our fists and surrender our lives to you and that we would meet you in that place where you have shown your uniqueness and your power to do everything that it takes for us to be free. We thank you for the reminder that communion is and we pray that we would this week taste afresh and anew of who you are and what you've done for us. In your name we pray, amen.